Good morning. We'll start at Psalm 8 in the Old Testament. It's all of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's flick over to Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again... I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here am I, and the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Emma. Welcome, folks. Uh, Youth Church, that's your cue. You can start to make your way out. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. It's really lovely to have you along. We're in a a sermon series called First Things First. It's what we believe about uh, certain core issues about God, about the Bible, about Jesus today, about humanity. We're going through this as a manner of sort of hitting that middle C in the orchestra. Tune your instruments, folks. This is what we're on about. 
Okay, um, I'm going to be looking at this again today. We're looking at obviously about Jesus, which is pretty daunting. Thanks for the, um, yeah, the, the G up, Mike. <laughs> Would you pray with me as we begin there? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus and we ask that today we ask simply that you would open our eyes, uh, open our hearts, open our ears to be able to see and comprehend and trust him as we ought, uh, the right, fitting, perfect saviour you've provided. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, if you were here last week, um, thanks for coming back, I suppose. If you weren't here last week, I say this because we looked at the doctrine of humanity and we looked in the broad brushstrokes of God's assessment of humanity as a whole, and though we could readily see that God has created humanity with an inherent dignity, value, worth and purpose that is distinct from the rest of creation, created for really genuinely glorious good, in fact we heard that again in Psalm 8, did you notice that? Humanity crowned with glory and honour, distinct from the rest of creation, ruling over. Unfortunately we also had to deal with the reality of the opposite side of the coin, that although humanity was created for glorious good, because of sin, because of the sin nature we've inherited from Adam, on the whole, we're not just capable of grievous evil, we're all guilty of evil. Now, hear that right. Evil doesn't mean we all kill kittens for sport. Okay, That's not what I'm talking about here. But what it is, is that all of us, by nature and choice, have rejected and rebelled against God's rightful rule over every aspect of our lives. We all live as though we're the kings of our own existence, wearing our own crowns. And what the, the, the world champions as a virtue, autonomy, autonomy from God, free to do whatever I like whenever I decide, God calls that sinful rebellion. This is what sin is, by the way. Have you noticed the picture up here? It's a very simple illustration. This is what sin looks like. Notice the distinct lack of horns and pitchforks. This is what sin looks like. Don't think serial killers. Think people determined to live their life their way. That's the heartbeat of sin. Do you understand that? And we all, by nature and choice, have borne the fruit of this sinful condition in our lives. This idea that I'm king, that he's not, God's not, I don't have to, I'll do it my way. We all do that in different ways to varying degrees. In this sense, no two sinners reject God in the exact same way. We're somehow unique in our rebellion. There's no comfort in that. But it's all of us have borne the same sin-sick spiritual condition out in life. In fact, last week I even spoke about the realistic state of our spiritual condition. When you really get down to the brass tacks, the spiritual state of our sinful condition before a holy, righteous and perfect God, based off God's own assessment, Romans 3, we saw we're less like a drowning person struggling to stay afloat, trying desperately to sort of grab something that will keep us above water. And if we're smart enough, maybe we'll realise Jesus is that thing and reach out for him. That's how a lot of people imagine or describe the problem of sin and the spiritual condition of humanity. But when you read the Bible, when you read God's own assessment, it doesn't compute. Romans 3 we looked at last week. No one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away and become worthless. It doesn't get much bleaker. Dead in sin was how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. Our spiritual state, folks, is not half-dead, drowning victims. No, no, it's dead, rotting rebels on the ocean floor. That's where I left us last week. So, as I said, thanks for coming back. Um, 
Because what we need here is a solution. We started to look at it a little bit last week. This is where we get to it. And the solution, we don't need resuscitation, you see. The problem has gone well beyond that. We need a miracle. (laughs) We need an event outside of our comprehension, outside of our control for this story to finish any different. We need a miracle saviour who can engineer a miracle rescue that defines nature. And this is Jesus. This is who we're focusing on specifically today. Really, we focus on him every week. There's a good reason for that. But we're looking at what are the things we are biblically convinced that are true and important about Jesus and why they matter. Once again, you've got, you should have, if you've got an outline, if you didn't get one, grab one. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. If you don't own a Bible, put your name in that one and it's yours. But on our outlines in the, in the middle of your service sheet, you will have got the, our statement of beliefs about Jesus. Once again, I'm going to deal with a fraction of what could be said. But the first things I do really want to focus in, uh, focus in on and deal with is the first two statements that we make there. The first one you'll notice is about Jesus. It's about his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and birth to a virgin woman. The fancy doctrinal term we call this is the incarnation, God taking on flesh. And the second one, second statement there deals with Jesus' unique nature as both fully God and fully man. Again, if you like fancy doctrinal terms, it's the hypostatic union. Where the Bible and therefore Christians maintain that Jesus is one being with two natures, fully God and truly human. Now, both of those ideas, both the idea of the incarnation, God taking on flesh, and the hypostatic union, Jesus, one being with two natures, both of those ideas are hard and, let's be honest, seem a little bit ridiculous from one perspective. I mean, why would Christians believe this? Much less, why would they acknowledge that they believe this? Much, much less, why would they talk about it in public like a Sunday sermon? <laughs> Well, as we said constantly through the series, remember this, the first reason is that these aspects are biblically true. I don't believe them, and you ought not believe them based on convenience or comfort. We believe them because God has revealed them to be so. And secondly, when understood rightly, they actually reveal a richness and a consistency and a necessity to the marvellous plan, the marvellous rescue plan that God has intended for humanity that ought in turn really genuinely turn your awe factor up to 11. Because these characteristics that mark Jesus out, well, they mark him out as the right kind of saviour. In fact, the perfect saviour to solve the enormous impossible problem of humanity. Now, I want to help you come to a bit of a clearer understanding of this today. So I want to pose a slightly new illustration for you to think about. I'm going to move you off the ocean floor for a bit. I'm going to put you in a house. It's a good start. It's one of those really nice old houses above the shops on the main street. You know, it's spacious, a couple of stories. Uh, you know, it's ornate. It's really lovely. It's really specky, convenient, close to the schools, everything going for location, location, location. You know what I'm talking about? But it's on fire! <laughs> well, that escalated quickly. Um, sudden shocking twist. <laughs> what kind of saviour do you need in this scenario? What kind of saviour do you need in this scenario? Let me posit that you need a saviour who has at least these three qualities. You need someone who is willing to save you. You need someone who is able to save you. You need someone who is proximal, and what I mean by that is close at hand, within arm's reach to save you. Now think about that for a minute. You need all three of those qualities in a saviour if that saviour is going to be of any benefit to you. Let me pray that in practice. 
Because if Freddy the firefighter comes along, if he shows up, he's able to save, right? He's got all the training, he's got all the right equipment, he's ready to go. He's proximal, he's arrived on the scene, he's close at hand to be able to use those skills and ability. But if he's not willing, you're toast. If Freddy refuses to go into the flames to drag you out, you're gone. Able and close enough are not good enough. He must be willing also. Or suppose Freddy shows up, he's willing and desirous to save you. He's close at hand. He makes it into the burning building within arm's reach of you. But if Freddy is four years old, if he's a child who doesn't have the capacity to drag out a, let's say, heavy enough adult male, (laughs) or if he's an adult, but he suffered injuries on his way in and he's therefore rendered himself unconscious... All you've ended up with is a would-be proximal saviour who's unable. That's no help either. Or lastly, imagine the call goes out, the house is on fire, the call is received by Freddie, who happens to be the best fireman in the business. He is strong, he is brave, he is made out of asbestos, this guy. Like He is absolutely fireproof. Imagine he receives the call. He's willing, he's able, but he's stuck in traffic half an hour away. If he's not proximal, If he's not close at hand, it doesn't matter how willing he is, it doesn't matter how much training he's got, how much equipment he's got, he is of no value to you. You need a saviour with all three things going for you, willing, able, close at hand. But remember, our spiritual problem is actually much worse than being trapped in a burning building. Our spiritual situation is much worse than a house fire staring down impending death. The truth of the matter we saw last week is that we're already spiritually dead. The shocking truth of humanity and the condition is that we're born physically alive but spiritually flatlined. Adam and Eve, as our representatives, set fire to the house in the very beginning. They torched theirs and our relationship with God and we're born into a space where we are spiritually dead on arrival. Even Freddy the firefighter, the champion firefighter, he's a smouldering spiritual corpse next to my smouldering spiritual corpse. He's close at hand, but as a fellow human, he's neither willing or able to help. Enter Jesus. You see, he is the right and only kind of saviour that can pull off the otherwise impossible rescue mission. Because we need this saviour not to have the same problem as we have. We need someone who's not inherited the same sin condition as the rest of humanity. Someone who's not already spiritually dead on arrival in our sin-sick inferno of a house. We need someone born in a right relationship with God outside the flames. This is Jesus, born of a woman and yet born of God. Look at Luke one thirty-five. It puts it plainly, when the angel Gabriel visits Mary... He tells her of this momentous task that she's been chosen for to carry and give birth to the saviour of the world. Her natural first question is, verse 34, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin. That's a fair question. (laughs) Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, do you hear that? By virtue of the miraculous, the immaculate conception of Jesus into Mary's womb, Jesus does not inherit the sin-sick condition of Adam, of us. 
That is a really good start for a divine rescue operation, isn't it? Someone not stuck with the same problem as us. But it raises some questions. Why did God go to the trouble of taking on flesh? (laughs) Why did he go to the trouble of engineering a miraculous conception and a virgin birth that seemed, well, let's be honest, it seemed unnecessary, convoluted, complicated and just outright hard to believe? That's what most people think. I mean, why didn't God just sort of laser beam Jesus to earth, fully grown, clearly God, ready to get the job done, kind of like Chris Hemsworth in the Thor movies? You know what I mean? That would have been heaps more convenient. Why go to the trouble of taking on flesh? Have you ever wondered that question? You ought to have. It's a good question. Why all this mucky fleshly business? We'll see more of this in the Sermon on Salvation. But for now, realise it is necessary from a representative point of view. If I could put it really simply, only man, only humanity owes the debt. Contrary to the Billy Joel's song, we did start the fire. But only God can satisfy the payment. Therefore, we need a God-man to save. In fact, this is what we hear in our Bible reading from Hebrews today. Turn there now if you've got your Bibles with you. Turn to Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5. What does it say? It's not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Do you recognize Psalm 8 being quoted there? By the writer of the Hebrews, it speaks of that glorious purpose that we spoke about last week. The glorious purpose of humanity made to rule God's creation under God himself. And though humanity created just a little lower than the the angels, verse 7, it's not to angels that God has given responsibility for ruling under him. Did you notice that? That's a high view of humanity. That was purposed for humans to rule under God. God put everything under our feet in terms of responsibility to rule and subdue and bring order to his world. But what's the problem? What's the problem with this? It's not what we see. Have a look at the second half of verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. It's not what we see. You know what? Humanity is stuffed there. Though we failed to fulfill God's creation mandate, And though we fail and we continue to make a hash of ruling his world in a way that actually brings glory to him, I mean, just take a look at the world today and indeed all of human history, you'll see this played out in real time and space. Everyone's got their own little crowns on their head. It's like Christmas lunch every day with humanity. Because we've stuffed it, that doesn't mean God's plan and intentions for humanity has failed. Do you realise that? Because where humanity has crashed out of fulfilling Psalm 8, Jesus, the second Adam, fully God, fully human, he succeeded. Look at verse 9. We don't see uh, yet, yet, we don't see everything, uh, sorry, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Skip down to verse 14 for me. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus is able to taste death on behalf of you, on behalf of a sinful humanity, because he's human. He is a fitting representative. And he's able to break the power of death because he's God. Jesus is the right kind of saviour. Bring it back for a moment to our burning house analogy. Jesus is proximal. He is close at hand. He is God in the flesh. It does not get any more personally intimate close than that. And therefore he's able to represent humanity just like Adam did when he fell. Jesus is now able to. And at this point he's shown himself at least the capacity to save. Because unlike humanity, he's born outside the sin-sick inferno. He doesn't have the same, well, rebellious condition as the rest of humanity. He's born in a right relationship with his heavenly father. This is a good option. This is a good start. Two questions remain. Was he willing to actually save? How did he demonstrate this willingness? And in fact, how did he demonstrate that he had not just the capacity, but the ability to save? Not in a hypothetical sense, but in a real genuine sense. So where have we got to go next? <clears throat> was he willing to save? I mean, there's a sense in which I want to go, the willingness question almost goes without saying. The fact that we're here today reading God's word, proclaiming Jesus as saviour, through his substitutionary sacrifice, dying in the place of sinful humanity, grounded in history, recorded and evidenced by eyewitnesses. The, I mean, he's obviously willing. <laughs> but I want you to understand the depth of his willingness. I want you to understand and come to terms with the fact that this was not easy. This is not a walk in the park. This is not just another day at the office. In fact, look at Matthew's account. Matthew has Jesus overwhelmed to the point of death as he considers his crucifixion in Matthew 26, 38. It means he was so grief-stricken by the contemplation of what was about to happen to him that he almost died thinking about it. Can you appreciate that level of anxiety? Luke's account has him sweating drops of blood, Luke 23, 44. Praying in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. That is a profound willingness. As a profoundly human statement at the same time as a profoundly supernatural ability to actually say, not my will but yours. A willingness that was penned in eternity past and played out in real time space and history at enormous cost to himself. Look at how Paul puts it in Philippians, speaking of Jesus. Philippians 2, 6 to 8 says, Speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you know, Jesus didn't have to do that to prove his godness. Do you realise that? Jesus did not have to do anything to prove his godness, yet he made himself nothing. That is, he took on a nature of a servant. He cloaked his godness in flesh. And he did this to demonstrate not his godness, but his goodness. He did this to demonstrate his goodness by dying the shameful, painful, horrific death that we deserve. He died that death in service as a substitute, 
and representative for a sinful humanity of which you and I are one. Back to our burning house illustration. Jesus was not subject or deserving of the flames and yet he charged in and he quenched the flames with his own blood spilt. Do you realise that? That's how this fire has been put out. He has doused the flames of God's rightful fury against sin and rebellion and he's done it with his own blood spilt. The blood of Christ, the God-man. Was he willing? (laughs) Beyond capacity to understand he was willing. But did it work? How do we know that this sacrificial death was sufficient and actually able to save, not just a sort of martyr's example? Oh, look at that. Wow, what a good guy. He really died for us. Terrific. What do we do with that? How do we know that this was sufficient and actually able to do something for our dead, smouldering corpses? Because he rose from the dead. As the writer to the Hebrews put it there in 2.14 and 15, he broke the power of death. That is, he defeated sin, the world and the devil and he set free those who had previously been captive under fear of death. It's not death that necessarily worries people, it's the fear of judgment that comes after it. But Jesus killed death dead and his rising to to new life proves that he has the ability to likewise call others to new life those who would otherwise remain spiritually dead. Now realise this. Do you know what it means? It means that Jesus' death on the cross, it didn't just put the fire out and leave a scorched mess. That's not what happened here. No, no, Jesus is the right kind of saviour because having proven himself willing, having been close at hand, having proven himself able to save to the utmost people who were otherwise dead in sin, it's not a new house or resuscitation that Jesus is able to offer. It's a new creation and a resurrection. It's a new creation and a resurrection to a life of perfection that he's able to offer exclusively. Because he has gone and died the death. He is now raised to new life. In him, our life is hid and our hope of eternity. That is some rescue plan, isn't it? That is some miraculous salvation, don't you think? And it's not less than we needed. Friends, this is our saviour. This is Jesus. This is a miracle. But there's something else I do want you to, to notice here today. It's, it's kind of like the so what question or the answer to the so what question of personal application for each of us. There's something else significant and powerful in this miraculous rec- rescue that ought to have a profound effect here and now, not just into the future. It ought to have a profound effect here and now for those who've come to understand and trust Jesus personally. Partly one of the, the questions that sort of lies behind this is, why did Jesus have to live for so long? Why did he take 33 years to get this on the way? Why did he have to suffer so much? Why couldn't he have just sort of been born and then been sacrificed immediately? He's still God. His sacrifice would have still been perfect and sufficient. Why did he live for 33 years? Why did he suffer so much? Do you hear the question? I mean, partly the answer is to fulfill the law, fulfill the Old Testament. That's true. It was actually how it was intended, but there's more than that. More than that, there's something quite profound about Jesus' life that I don't want you to miss because he lived and he suffered and he died for you. He was tried and tested, tempted in every way and yet without sin, not for his sake but for yours. 
to demonstrate the extent of God's love and mercy for sinners, that he would suffer like a sinner though he had no need of his own. Have a look at Hebrews 4 to get what I mean. Have a look at Hebrews 4, 14. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with us in our weakness. Now, in practical terms, what this means is there is no temptation that you face that Jesus hasn't. More than that, there's no sin that has been perpetrated against you that God himself is not able to understand and personally identify with. It means that there's no time in life where you can legitimately say, where was God when that happened? Where was God? Didn't he under- does he understand? I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about Jesus' life. Mistreated, neglected, poor, marginalised, homeless, misunderstood, falsely accused, betrayed by his friends, beaten, abused, tortured and then killed. Oh, but God doesn't understand my pain. Really? And where this ought impact us very personally is that, hear me right on this one, some people have experienced, some people here even have experienced abuse at the hands of people who are supposed to love and protect them. And it's a pain that I cannot understand. I can't identify with all of your trauma. I can't make it right or undo or reverse the effects in your life now. But Jesus can. Because he suffered the same and conquered sin on behalf of his people. And he's done it so much so that God says things like this. Go to Romans 8 for me. Go to Romans 8, 18. What does he say here? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Present suffering is not worthy or, or worth comparing with the future glory that will be revealed in us. Or go to Revelation 21, looking at the end of times, a new heaven, a new earth, this new creation that Jesus promises. 21.3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now, Do you hear the hope that's in that? Again, hear me very carefully here. None of this justifies the sin that may have been perpetrated against you. But the promise is that Jesus has and will deal with the effects in such a way that it can't touch you anymore. It won't define you anymore. That which has been broken in you through sin, that which has been burnt to a crisp in sin's fire, will be restored in such a way with a glory, satisfaction and contentment revealed in Christ alone, so much so that you won't even be able to recall the former horror. 
Now just think about that for a minute because this absolutely blows my head up. Because I can't, as I said, I, I think about the very worst of human condition. And I think about rape and the torture and the, the abuse of the weak, including abuse of children. And I cannot fathom anything more heinous and horrible and disastrous than those things. The worst sin that I can imagine human to human. How can that be set right? How can that be set right? If you're the victim, how can that be set right? And how can that level of culpability be taken away if you're the perpetrator? I don't understand how that can be. That seems, to my limited understanding, impossible. That would take a miracle that I cannot conceive of, and yet that's the explicit promise of God through Jesus. Do you realise that? No sin too grievous that he can't deal with and make satisfaction for and forgive. No sin or weapon formed against you that will prosper. He promises to wipe away every tear and in the new order that he is bringing in, that's not even worth remembering. Folks, drink that in for a minute. Both as the victims and the perpetrators of various kinds of sinful horror. Jesus comes as the right kind of saviour, the only ultimate solution. The truth is you need him and I need him. Have we come to him in that way? Are we trusting him in that way? Are you leaning on him to deal with the past hurt and the horrors which you've done or have been done against you? Whether victim or offender, in Christ alone, you no longer need to be identified by your past. That's a miracle. But you're invited to be defined by what Christ has done for you in the past, what he's working out through you by his spirit in the present, and what he promises to bring to completion in his future kingdom, perfection restored. Friends, if that doesn't swell your heart, would you just take your pulse? If you haven't heard that as the most guarantee ever, could you just check your hearing aid? If it doesn't refocus your vision of how to deal with the present pain, let me tell you, nothing will. It doesn't get bigger than this. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get any more magnificent than what God has accomplished and guaranteed on behalf of those whom are his in Christ Jesus. This is our saviour. This is Jesus. This is why we need him. This is why we praise him. How about I pray and we'll do just that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is beyond comprehension for us to understand the enormity of what you have done for us in Jesus, what you are presently able to do in us through Jesus by your Spirit and what you have promised for us in the future in your eternal kingdom. Father, we only ask that you would help us hold on to you who are holding on to us with both hands tightly, that for all the former past hurt or horror that we've been either the victim or the perpetrator of, that you would help us to see that it's been swallowed up that has been dealt with, that has been done with in Christ's death on our behalf, that we now actually can be new creations, looking forward to a hope of glory that is just beyond compare. And we pray that you do this in us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.